Our scripture reading for this morning is from John chapter 18, verse 25 to 40. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Cyphus to the, the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you for coming to Pillar today. We're really glad you're here. If you've had a week like mine, it was busy, busy, busy. Perhaps the stresses of your job, of your family, of life is weighing down on you. And we hope that your time here at Pillar in hearing the word proclaimed, in singing songs, in community, in celebrating communion 
would give you peace and rest. Jesus wants nothing from you today. He wants you to rest. And he wants you to rest so that we can hear and bathe in what he has done for us. So you can put your masks down. You can put your all good Christian duty to the side. That is not what is expected of you today. It's just let's hear what Jesus has for us in our time together. And for that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time at Pillar today, Father. We pray for good work to be done, Lord. We pray that we may do just that, is rest in you. Help us to see you and your glory in a myriad of ways today, Father. Help us to experience your presence. Holy Spirit, come to us, Lord. We invite you to be here to teach us something important about you. In your name we pray, amen. One of my favorite writers in the world is Flannery O'Connor. Now, if you looked at any list of who are the two top Christian writers of the 20th century, two names come to mind. C.S. Lewis and one that you perhaps don't know so much of is Flannery O'Connor. Both of these are Christian writers who wrote prolifically. Now, Flannery O'Connor, writing in the mid-50s, and writes about Southern Christian life. Now, I am not from the South, all jokes aside, although I have a few, see me afterward. Uh, I, I don't know much about the South, but I know, what I know about the South is Flannery O'Connor's picture of the South. And now, with Flannery O'Connor's stories, she's a religious woman who writes these very weird, very funny, very religious, very violent stories. They are described as being almost carnival shows of Christianity. They show her, her target, her main target is the hypocrisy of Christians. And she does this in many ways through mostly her short stories, which I really love. Her most famous story is called A Good Man is Hard to Find. Do we have the pics to throw up there? There we go. Uh, there's Flannery O'Connor, and her famous work, her famous story is called A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's in every single college lit textbook. If you went to college and took a writing 101 or a lit 101 class, this was the story you should have read but skipped it. Uh, <laughs> Good Man is Hard to Find is her most famous story, and it tells a story about this family, mom, dad, two little annoying kids in the back seat, going on this road trip. Now, they bring along the dad's mother, the grandma, and the grandma is kind of the centerpiece of this entire story. The grandma is annoying and racist and a gossiper and a hypocrite. And she's the most religious of all of them. And she's so judgmental to her son, her family, everyone that she meets. Now, in the background of the story, through the news and through the newspapers and through the town gossip, we hear that there is this escaped murderer named the misfit who has escaped from a local prison. Well, back to the story of the road trip, the grandma is criticizing everybody, but she's a good Christian woman, as she keeps reminding everybody. The family gets into a minor car wreck. The tire is off. The dad, the kids are out now, like, we got in an accident, we got in, you know, just uh, the way kids are annoying, aren't they? And so uh, they're all off to the side. Well, the grandmother in the distance sees what Flannery O'Connor describes, a hearse-like car coming her way. And you can kind of see where the narrative is starting to come here. Well, the misfit is there with his crew, and while they're trying to act under anonymity, they're trying to help this family. They're actually trying to do a good deed for the family. And the grandmother, who can't keep her mouth shut, said, I know you. You're the misfit. You escaped from prison. And he says, lady, I really wish you wouldn't have said that. That's my southern accent. Uh, <laughs> I really wish you didn't recognize me. 
And from that point, the misfit and his crew carry out this great act of violence on the entire family off to the side. We don't see that directly, but the family is now out of the picture. And it's just the misfit and the grandma talking. And the grandma now, start, all of that Christian fakeness is put to the side. And she starts for the first time speaking truth. And she starts saying kind things to the misfit, trying to preach the gospel to him. And they talk about Jesus in a way. The misfit has a better understanding of Jesus than this holier-than-thou grandmother does. And the grandmother reaches out, and Flannery tells us that as if he was touched by a snake, the misfit takes out his gun and shoots her three times. And she lies there dead. One of misfit's crew laughs about it. He's like, boy, she was a talker. And Misfit says this famous line that's one of her most famous lines in, the, in the, all of her work. It says this. Can we throw this up here? She would have been a good woman, the Misfit said, if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Ooh. She would have been a good woman if somebody were there to shoot her every minute of her life. Somehow, when she was faced with death, when she was faced with danger, when she was faced with reality, the realness came out. All of the mask, all of the nonsense was put to the side. And the one thing that we look at is that the misfit in his danger brought out truth and holiness of sorts in a literary fashion uh, of the grandma. Now, the misfit and the grandma are opposites in every way. They're, it's a juxtaposition. One of them highlights the other one. One of them shows the other's strengths or weaknesses. And so we look at this word juxtaposition, and I'm going to use this word a lot. You, you've heard this before. Here's the, the dictionary definition for juxtaposition. It's when we place two or more things side by side in order to compare or contrast or to create an interesting effect. So when we take two things side by side and we, we put them there to show the differences. So I'm not a very tall guy. I mean, 6'2 isn't tall, I don't think. But... Uh, <laughs> If I put someone tall, like Dan Walker, next to me, standing next to Dan, uh, it would, my shortness highlights his tallness and vice versa. I look shorter next to Dan than I do, I won't say the name, but whoever is shorter than me. There's like <laughs> children, I guess. And so placing two things, that's a juxtaposition. And this is what we're going to look at today. In fact, the, the title of this sermon is The Juxtaposition of Grace. When we put two things together, especially when one of those things is Jesus, we're going to see grace amplified and highlighted. And so in our narrative today, in chapter 18 of John, where we continue our study, we're going to see many pairs and parallels. But it's more than just for, oh, that's cool, more than just for interesting effect. We're going to see these because they're going to be powerful insights into our lives. Our main idea, our thesis statement for today is this, the grace of Jesus shines to those near and far in truth, in our freedom, and in our shame. The grace of Jesus shines to those near and far in truth, in our freedom, and in our shame. We'll look into the juxtaposition of grace whenever Jesus comes close. We'll, our three points are going to be grace in truth, grace in freedom, and grace in shame. So let's start at the first one here. We're going to start with grace in truth. I'm going to mix the narrative up a little bit. We'll kind of have some fractured timeline here. But we'll start off with Jesus. And Jesus, in chapter 18, he's in three different locations in one chapter. He starts off in the garden, moves to the high priests, where we heard the text read today, and then moves to Pilate's house. So Jesus was going to be in three different areas today. 
Judas first brings soldiers to find Jesus in the garden. Jesus asks this question, whom do you seek? They, they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. And he goes through this routine again. Now, Peter, who's always ready to show his devotion, uh, takes out his dagger and slices off some guy's ear. Uh, and Jesus holds him back on that. This is not what our kingdom is about. But again, we, we spent seven weeks looking at the many different I am statements of Jesus. But here we have the eighth one. The eighth I am statement is his claim to divinity. I am he, he says twice. So with this arrest, he goes off to the high priest Caiaphas. And Caiaphas uh, hears this middle of the night secret hearing. It's late at night. They were, it was nighttime at, in the garden when Jesus was praying and the disciples kept falling asleep. It was already nighttime. This is a few hours later. So now we have this secret uh, court, kangaroo court, and they want Jesus accused very quickly. So one, a little side note, one of the marks of a free society is open courts with no secret trials. Here is the opposite of that. It's a closed court, no witnesses, no real evidence in a secret trial. And John reminds us in the narrative here is that Caiaphas, this is the same guy a few chapters earlier who said the line about Jesus when Jesus started to make a name for himself in Jerusalem is one man should die for the people. Now, in Caiaphas' mind, he wasn't claiming any kind of substitutionary atonement. But in Caiaphas' mind, he was just saying that he's going to die and this movement will die with it. So we'll just let Jesus go. Don't mess with him. He's going to die and this whole thing is going to move. But to paraphrase a line from Princess Bride, that phrase doesn't mean what you think it means, Caiaphas. It means so much more. And so here, John is starting to connect the dots for us. And this narrative, the narrative of the passion of Christ is starting to move into position. In uh, verses 19, we hear this with, with this court case. The high priest, when questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly, it, I, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them, and they will know what I said. When he said these things, one of the offices standing near struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? This nonsense of a question. Now this act is the first act of violence toward Jesus uh, that we can see. As we know, it won't be the last. Jesus offers truth instead of retaliation. This is an act of grace to be able to speak truth. They speak accusations, Jesus responds in truth. Now here, the high priests have exactly what they need, which is an accusation, not witnesses, not evidence, not a formal hearing, a trial coming down from a judge, none of that stuff. They just have an accusation. And then they bring Jesus to the third place, Garden, Caiaphas, and now to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Now at this time, people in Israel lived under parallel authorities. They had the high priests in the Jews' authority, and they had Rome as an authority. A governor was appointed uh, over Rome, which is Pontius Pilate, and he, Pontius Pilate, appointed Caiaphas for the high priest. Now, the high priest is probably more political than religious, but you have these two men now uh, who are bringing charges against Jesus. Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the high priest, is acting almost as a go-between between Rome and the Jews. And these two men, history tells us that they had a pretty good relationship, Pilate and Caiaphas. And now here they are trying to bring uh, charges to Jesus. Now, the Jews wouldn't come into Pilate's house. It was Passover, 
and if they went to this Gentile's house, they would be unclean and not be able to uh, participate in Passover. So they stayed outside, and Jesus goes in. So you have Jesus, this great scene of Jesus and Pilate together for their third place. Uh, it's still dark, and now Pilate has to come out and it says to the guy on the porch, what accusation do you bring this guy? I mean, this is, we're talking 2, 3 in the morning now, and the, the governor was just woken up with, for this little stupid uprising. Uh, what accusation do you bring? And Caiaphas says, in a very lawyerly fashion, no offense to lawyers in there, but uh, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Trust us in our circular logic. He's guilty. Uh, and so Pilate's like, judge him by your own law. Stop bringing this to me. It's parallel, parallel laws, guys, remember? And Caiaphas says, we can't put anybody to death because death, uh, punishment for blasphemy that Jesus was accused of is stoning. And under this authority of Rome, only Rome can do, give the death penalty. Jews can't stone at this point. So we can't put him to death, but you can. That's why we're bringing him to you. Now, Pilate's not the best spot, in the best spot. He is not the high-end uh, governor in the Roman Empire. He's stationed all the way the far reaches of uh, the Roman Empire in Judea. He's a mid-level manager, and he's had issues with Jewish uprising before. People don't want this spot because Jews seem to buck against this Roman system. And Pilate is just trying to keep the peace here. So in this exchange that we heard read, Pilate asks Jesus five questions, and they kind of are not really wanting answers, sort of, almost questions as weapons. Are you not the king of the Jews, mockingly? And when Jesus answered him about, like, what do you think about this? I'm not a Jew. Am I a Jew? Question number two. What have you done? Why is this such a big deal? So now you're a king. You're talking about kingdom. So now you're a king. All right, let's hear it. And then when Jesus says, everyone who is of truth listens to my voice, Pilate says, what is truth? Now, sometimes this, what is truth, is often looked at as, like, this is, Jesus, this is Pilate really starting to become a Christ follower. He's seeking after truth. The context says nothing about that. It's almost this, remember, it's three in the morning. What is truth? Okay, it's not like I, we used to do it at, in school, you know, sitting in the coffee shop, you know, with our little berets and clove cigarettes. Uh, not me, but uh, <laughs> talking about truth. What is truth? Let's talk about, no, it's not that. It's this dismissive, what is truth? I don't care about any of this. So we see Jesus' truth juxtaposed with Pilate's confused, frustrated questioning. Pilate just doesn't understand. Jesus is talking about, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. It's a different kingdom. I come from a different kingdom, uh, Jesus says. So here's the juxtaposition in the scene of these two rulers, two kingdoms, face to face. Pilate represents the kingdom of the world, Rome, the greatest kingdom on earth up until that time, juxtaposed with this simple, humble Jewish teacher. So the mocking question, what is truth? Pilate doesn't see that truth is standing right in front of him right now. Pilate's a political opportunist, a, a pragmatic approach to politics here. He's not interested in any late-night theological discussions. He wants the problems to just go away. He wants to end this, especially in the middle of the night. I don't want any more trouble with these pesky people anymore. Okay? I already have a couple of uh, problems with them. I don't need any more. 
And so this brings us to Pilate moving into our second point, grace of freedom, grace in freedom. So he finally makes his decision. This great governor makes this decision. He goes out to declare to the crowds, remember, two, three in the morning, all these crowds, probably the same crowds that came to arrest Jesus in the garden, goes outside to answer the crowds, and he gives his verdict. I find no fault with him, as if that would end. And he asks a sixth question of the crowds this time. So do you want me to release your king of the Jews? He's such a king. Why don't I release him to you? He's innocent. And at Passover, Rome had this agreement that it would give a prisoner almost as a gift to the Jews to show probably good faith or something like that. He, they would release somebody. And to his surprise, they changed course. Not this man. We don't want this man. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. We want him. Now, in John, we're told that Barabbas is a robber. In the other gospel accounts, not only is a, a robber, but he's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist who was a traitor against Rome. He, he led an insurrection to Rome that led to murder. Give us the convicted rebel who has spoken out against Rome versus the guy who has never harmed anybody or ever spoken out against Rome. Give us the guy in Viking horns running around the Capitol building. Give us that guy. He seems good. Give us that guy. And I can just imagine at this moment, Pilate just going, what is wrong with these people? What is going on here? It's like everything's topsy-turvy. Jesus, Barabbas, they are in sharp contrast. They are juxtaposed to each other. Jesus, innocent. Barabbas, guilty. Righteous. Rebel. And we can look at one more juxtaposition that I think is kind of clever, is that the word Barabbas in Aramaic actually means son of the father. So we have an innocent son of the father be freeing a guilty son of the father. Kind of an interesting parallel there. Jesus brings grace through securing the freedom of Barabbas. Now imagine Barabbas's reaction when he was told he could go free. I mean, imagine this guy's in jail. He knows what he did. You don't have to tell him what he did. And he's like, hey, Barabbas, you're out. This guy, Jesus, he's going to be crucified in place of you. Who? Who's being crucified? Why? It makes no sense. A couple nights ago, I spent too long watching these stupid YouTube videos about a guy who last week went to, he looked online as to where the highest gas prices are in the country right now. And it was somewhere in California, of course. Uh, and so he goes to this one gas station that has the most expensive gas with $10,000 in cash. And he just stands there, and he walks up to people as they start to pump. And he's like, hey, I'm going to pay for your gas today. And he does that again and again. And the reaction is always the same kind of thing. It first starts off like, you better get away from me, <laughs> ready to fight, or cowering in fear. And then it, you kind of see these patterns of every single person, man, woman, older, younger, black, white. It's all the same reaction. It's anger, fear. And then it's like, who are you? Who are you? Really? What, what, is this a joke? And then the last question is, why? Why are you doing this for me? And th there's something about Barabbas in that, that I see like, why are you doing this for me? Did the person earn free gas? No, of course not. Did Barabbas earn free release? Of course not. But the act of grace has done this for us, has given us this gift that we don't deserve. Barabbas is free because of Jesus. Now, Jesus could have st stood there in front of Pilate and defended and denied and debunked all these charges coming at him, but he didn't. He spoke truth 
and he was found guilty. Because of Jesus, Barabbas goes free. Now, it's easy for me and probably for you to blame those silly crowds for demanding the guilty guy. But we really are no different. This is us. This is us in our hearts. We do the same thing. We are the crowds that yell out, give us Barabbas, instead of Jesus. I mean, think about what our heart wants more than Jesus today that we cry out for. Give us popularity over Jesus. Give us self-autonomy. Give us order and peace in our house. It's too loud. Give us friends. Give me a girlfriend. Give me secure retirement. Give me pleasure. Give me what I want now. We are no different than these crowds screaming out for Barabbas. So grace in freedom means that we rejoice that somebody else stood in our place to give freedom to us, namely Jesus. Grace and truth, grace and freedom, that brings us to the final picture, grace in shame. Grace and shame, and I put this last, even though it narrative style tells us first, because this is the one that's most like us, and perhaps this is the one that we need to hear about shame and what we do with it. In reading the story about Peter, in any of the Gospels, we can see ourselves, he is most like us than any of the other disciples, or we're most like him than we are at any of the other disciples. Stubborn and impatient and rash. We'll cut an ear or two off if we need to. Don't worry about that. Uh, there is much in this scene of, of chapter 18 to highlight with just Peter. Now, Peter's story is familiar. Chapters ago, we heard from up here, Jesus promised full allegiance to Jesus. J Peter promised full allegiance to Jesus. I will die for you. Jesus tells him, I think you'll deny, you're going to deny me here before the rooster crows. No, I'm going to die for you. No way would I do that. And Jesus, in a 1990s Wade World fashion, says, no way, way. Because uh, it's true, you will deny me before the rooster. So we had here there. Now, getting to this chapter, there's a storytelling technique in this chapter that the other Gospels don't do, and I think it's really clever. It's called cross-cutting editing. Now, we know this most in movies. When in movie, uh, movies we see cross-cutting is that we see one scene going on here, and then we leave that scene for a second, and then we see what's going on over here across town, and then we come back and see this scene, and we see this scene. I mean, the most basic is people on a phone when we watch a phone call in a movie. This guy asks a question over in California. This guy in New York answers it. They really aren't being filmed in, in California and New York. I hate to ruin movie magic for you. But the way that they're edited, it looks like they're parallel. And we see this in movies, and it adds tension. One of the best examples of this in Film School 101 is a, a famous mob movie where the, the crime boss is baptizing his baby in this huge, beautiful Catholic church. He's bringing his baby to baptism, and then we cross-cut to his henchmen uh, exterminating all the other crime families. And so we see this beautiful, religious, smells and bells of the Catholic Church, and then we see acts of violence. And then we cross-cut, and we hear the music, and we see the blessing and the religious rituals, more violence. We go back and forth. And by doing this, filmmakers and writers can create tension by creating these juxtapositions of the baptism, religious, and the violence, irreligious. And so when Jesus was taken away, we see this. We see this idea. We go back and forth between Jesus and Peter. Jesus and Peter. Jesus is taken away. Peter followed him. There was a girl at the courtyard when Jesus was entering uh, Caiaphas. And I don't know what this girl was doing, collecting tickets. I don't know. Making sure the right people passed. I don't know. But this girl was at the door. 17 and 18 says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, 
You're also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And so we, we have that first lie that Peter gives. And this strange inclusion about charcoal fire. I mean, it's a very specific kind of fire that we're told that Peter is warming himself in. He's in the courtyard. Jesus is inside this place somewhere, but Jesus, uh, Peter is nearby. We go on and says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? Again, the, the, the implied answer is, no way. Jesus, uh, he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden? I think, yeah, my cousin was bleeding because of you. I know you. And juxtapositions are all through this. While Jesus is answering, I am, to his captors, Peter is here saying, I am not. We see that Peter uh, cowers in front of this servant girl, and he's so afraid of being around her, whereas Jesus is standing firm to the representative of the greatest political and military force on earth. Peter is cowering. Jesus tells the truth. Peter is lying. This cross-cutting narrative makes this point really clear. And at this point, and this point only, when all the tension is high, this is where grace arrives. Verse 27 says, Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Now, in writing, there's a principle called explode a moment. It's a great exercise for creative writing. It's when you take a small amount of time, a few seconds perhaps, and you explode it onto three to five pages. What's going on in the character's head or what, uh, in his experience? What does he feel and smell and think and et cetera? It works with epiphanies most. So think about that time you first saw your spouse. You could explode that moment and write, even though it was just a little glimpse, you could write three to four pages about that. The first time you held your baby, or you had a near-death experience, came close in a car wreck, or tasted Family Mart's egg salad sandwich, amen? Uh, you could write about that. You could explode that moment. And those all work well. That rooster crow reminding Peter of what Jesus had said was one of those moments that we could explode. Imagine the shame and guilt and failure rising up with, before that rooster finished sounding its crow. Think about all the names he's thinking to himself. Coward, failure, embarrassment, sinner, traitor, rebel. At this moment, Peter's world just stopped. And there are some movie versions of this scene where at the, Jesus is across the way and they, they happen to look up and they lock eyes at this moment and it just adds to this power of shame. The shame that Peter feels is crushing. And you can imagine it in this moment. To hearken Flannery O'Connor, he would have been a good man if there was a rooster crowing every minute of his life. That would have changed him. There was something about this moment that changed Peter. Everything we know of Peter hinges really on this one moment before the rooster and Peter after the rooster. This shame that he felt was actually the grace of God coming to him in not-so-secret disguise. Impulsive and stubborn Peter before the rooster turned into confident and pastoral Peter after this. This mo mo moment mattered to Peter. He felt the weight of shame and used it to run, maybe even physically, run to Christ. Other gospel accounts adds in the sentence, 
and he wept bitterly. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, Peter here is juxtaposed with another character who also felt shame and remorse about betraying Jesus, and that's Judas. We're told that Judas felt the same shame about betraying Jesus and realized his own sin in that. But rather than using that shame to run to Christ, Judas ran away from Christ and died. The shame that Peter felt propelled him to Jesus to get further, closer, further to Jesus. And so what, what is your shame doing to you? Which shame is, is, what is shame fueling you to do? Run to or run away? Because, friends, there are, there's purpose in our shame, and I don't have to explain to you what shame feels like. Many of you right now know acutely what shame is, it feels like. You are currently feeling its soul-crushing weight on your chest. Maybe it's something you've done, something you said, something you looked at, something you didn't say, something you sought, an action, a thought, an idea, something is weighing on you. And if we explode that moment, if we were to write about that in three pages, the way you feel is probably a lot like the way Peter felt. Coward, failure, embarrassment, sinner, traitor, rebel. Well, let's even add in a few more. You failure as a parent, liar, thief, pervert. Those are all of the words that are coming toward us. And our roosters are different with our shame, our, but they're here. Although our roosters look different than they did for Peter's literal rooster. They could be the, friend, the words of a good friend, your web history, the hole in the wall you put there last week in anger is there mocking you, your empty bank account, a disease, a failed career. All of these roosters in our life are telling us what we are shameful of, but rather they're also pictures of God's grace to us. And you know, I love that detail about the charcoal fire mentioned earlier. Charcoal has that very distinct smell, and our olfactory senses carry the most memory with us. You know, we, we remember things we smell. It's why I can still smell my grandmother's bathroom. Uh, it's the soap in my grandma's bathroom. It's rose, by the way. It's disgusting. Uh, <laughs> every time I smell patchouli oil, I think of Portland. I hate patchouli oil. I love Portland, but I hate patchouli oil. So uh, the, the idea is, like, we, we remember smells. And I just wonder if Peter thinks about that moment of shame whenever he crosses over charcoal. He smells charcoal and he can remember the grace of God that came in that rooster's call. That smell, that event are so closely linked together. Now this may be a bit of a stretch, but later on in verse 21, after the resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples, Jesus has made a charcoal fire, we're told in John. And Peter comes with his fishes. And this is where he has this exchange with Peter uh, well, I, I don't want to say anything because someone's going to preach on this soon, but Peter is asked three other questions, and he no longer denies. That smell of charcoal is in his brain, and rather than denying, he runs to Christ in, in his answering. That feeling of shame that you're feeling today is God's grace to us. Use this to propel us to Christ, not send us further away. C.S. Lewis, uh, I, I wanted to try to have my two favorite writers in a sermon, so I'm doing it. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, great divorce book, has this great quote of shame. Uh, it's a fictional character saying, do you remember on earth that th there were things too hot to touch with your finger, but you could drink them all right? Shame is like that. If you will attempt it, if you drink the cup to the bottom, you'll find it very nourishing. But try to do anything else with it, and it scalds. 
Anything else with shame other than drinking it down like a cup of tea is burning. So we can drink tea and get the nourishment, but if we stick our hand in the cup, it would burn. And so there are things that we can do with our shame that are good and nourishing for our souls, and there are things that we do that are hurtful. Anything else that we do with shame other than drink it down, give it to Christ, is burning to us. Holding our shame onto us because we think we deserve to feel bad because you don't know what I did. I deserve to be punished for this. I deserve to have this gross feeling in my stomach. I deserve to have that hole in the wall there for the rest of eternity so I can see what kind of terrible person I am. When we start doing things like that, that is damaging to our souls. It keeps us far from Jesus and is the most anti-gospel thing. Jesus said that hole in the wall, your web browser history, those are the things that bring me to you. Peter and shame, Pilate and truth, Barnabas and freedom, all spring from our nearness to Jesus. And the same convergence is for us today. Now, it is a true statement that Jesus provides grace upon grace for your sin and shame. And shame is not a state that we were meant to dwell in. You need to hear this again. Shame is not a state that we were meant or intended or designed to dwell in. We are most like Barabbas. He was going to be crucified because he was a rebel, a traitor, and he was going to die the death of rebels, which was just. But Jesus stepped in. Even though he was sinless, Jesus, that is, sinless and righteous and perfect, he took the place of Barabbas and died the death reserved for rebels. And we, friends, are those rebels. We live lives of condemnation and shame, but Jesus steps in and dies in our place. Death by crucifixion is the Roman penalty and the just penalty for rebellion. Jesus died, Barabbas freed. Jesus died, I'm free. Jesus died, you can be free. Shame now has no place to root in your lives anymore. We use our shame, we must use our shame to do some spiritual work in our lives. Let our shame bring us to confession. Jesus died for that shame, so give it to him. Coward, failure, embarrassment, sinner, traitor, rebel, terrible parent, liar, thief, pervert. These are no longer your story. They are no longer your words. They're no longer your explode the moment. And pillar, in light of this, let us live with openness and confession to each other. Pilate didn't just feel bad when that rooster called. He ran to Jesus. Let us confess one to another. We do not need to prove anything to anyone here. And if you listen closely, there are roosters crowing all up in this place. Uh, we all have shame that we bring to one another. Okay, We need to acknowledge that. There, you don't have to prove anything to us. Just be honest with one another. There's no place for shame here. There's no place of pride here in church. We are all formal rebels trying to tell rebels that one who died an undeserved death reserved for rebels. That's what we're trying to do here today. And shame brings us that. So if you're someone today carrying that burden of shame and guilt for your sin, don't leave today without confessing this to a brother or sister. Today. Now, Jesus, he doesn't need any of us to forgive your sin. But there is something that we're told to speak our sin, put it in the light so it dies and it rots. And so before you go today, whatever sin you're hanging on to with that shame all around you, speak it today to somebody. Tell somebody. Uh, if you don't have anybody next to you that tell, 
I'll be right up here. Tell me. John's back there. Tell John. Actually speak your shame today so that we can remind you the work Christ has done on your behalf. And if you don't consider yourself a Christian today, you may feel that burden of sin weighing you down. And I hope you feel that weight. I hope you feel it. Not to oppress you, but to do what it does to all of us is that shame and guilt and burden sends us to Jesus. May that happen to you. Like he did for Barabbas, Jesus has taken the place on the cross for you and your rebellion. This is what we celebrate during this Easter season. This is why we call it the good news. And we'd love to tell you more about that. The juxtaposition of grace is summarized simply like this. Jesus dies a rebel death in order to extend grace toward those who, who deserve a rebel's death. In Christ, we are fully forgiven, faithfully loved, and forever kept. And for that, we're grateful. Let's pray. Father, we start by giving you our shame, Lord. We name it. We give you our shame that we have held on to for too long. We know that you are a God who forgives, and we ask for forgiveness today. Father, I pray that you would do your work at convicting us of our sin, Lord. May roosters crow all around us this week, Lord, not to make us feel bad, but rather, Lord, to make us feel forgiven, Lord. Help us to give our sin to you, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict us this week. Convict us right now, Lord, as we move into singing and as we move into communion, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be heavy so that we can lay them at your feet so that we know that we are forgiven, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for dying in our place. Amen.